Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I'm Ed Krasnick, my co-host Jennifer Kalari, coming along very shortly. This is the show where we talk about mental health and we practice mental health skills. Mental health is a practice, and uh, it's something that you can do in any moment. Don't watch me, because I'm definitely the before, but my partner, Jennifer Kalari, is the after. She actually does these things. I try some of them, and they work, and just little adjustments. How you relate to your thoughts and feelings determines a lot of your mental health, and a lot of what's going on is not going on outside. It's all going on inside, so whatever media you're watching, whatever you feed yourself, whatever you take in affects how you think and how you feel. The fact that I, you know, that I'm saying that it sounds so elementary. It sounds so basic. Well, of course it does. Well, the problem is that we do things unconsciously and whenever we make, we do things unconsciously, it can back up on us. It can work against us. It can add to the resistance. And what I mean by the resistance, I'm not talking about a political movement. I'm talking about what you resist within your own self. So I want to tell you that our guest today, this is really lucky uh, for us, um, is one of the legendary uh, radio hosts, one of the legendary hosts, uh, Steve Mason, from the show Mason in Ireland since 2004. And before that, many other shows, including a show with our friend Sue Kalinsky, WNEW in New York. And um, I'm so excited to talk to him because he is a multifaceted person. He's a legendary host, a great host. And uh, I'm just looking forward to that. I always like to start a show uh, by doing some emotional shout outs very, very quickly about whatever state you're in. I want to welcome you to the show briefly. And here are emotional shout outs. If you don't know what to do with your anger now that the focus is off of the White House insanity, welcome. If you're scared of things getting back to normal because normal was abnormal to you, welcome. If watching shows about gruesome murders bores you, welcome. If you're an emotional ventriloquist who's able to throw your feelings, welcome. If you keep your teletherapy camera on 24 hours a day because of separation anxiety, welcome. If you catch your dog rolling their eyes at you when you try to set limits, welcome. If you're ready for a Ken Burns Civil War theme park, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. Today's show is brought to you by Rerantorator, which is a positive thought generator, turning the volume up on high quality thoughts, keeping better thoughts fresh, like a refrigerator for your thinking. Rerantorator takes your negative thoughts and turns them around into a positive direction, making positive energy and refrigerating all the coolness that is you. Turn your head around with Rerantorator. Now on today's show, we're going to talk about identity. We're going to talk about mental health, the mental health of a host and what that's like to be your whole self on the air. I don't know anything about that. We're also going to talk about what it's like to be bipolar and how to manage that. And we're going to talk about radio, the beauty of radio. Now let's jump into our conversation with Steve Mason, and then Jennifer will join us. When you're a host, your job is to support other people. How have you managed to support yourself all these years? And I'm not talking financially, I mean emotionally, when you're a host. Well, you know, I, every day I say to my partner, Jack, 
I say, uh, time to climb the mountain again. And, you know, for me doing a three hour show live, extemporaneous, uh, loose and funny and creative, it, it is every day sort of climbing uh, a mountain, I feel like. And, you know, it's a fun climb. Um, I never exactly know where I'm going to climb or what I'm going to arrive at. But for me, uh, there's something about that being in the flow of it all that takes any sort of pressure out. Now, I, I do have the responsibility of being sort of the captain of our team uh, because it's me and it's John and uh, my producer, who's an on-air personality and our board op and all those people. You know, I, I sort of guide the entire show and John in a weird way is sort of, I mean, contributes a ton and is unbelievably clever and smart, but in a lot of ways is along for the ride. Um, and I'm sort of just going uh, with whatever the story or whatever the news of the day is and, and fun stuff and goofy stuff and taking callers and, you know, all that stuff. But yeah, there's, there's a responsibility that goes along with it. And, you know, I always say, you know, if you're an accountant and you make a mistake, uh, it's not, it's at least it's not in public. But uh, when I make a mistake, everybody hears it when I give a wrong statistic or say a wrong name or forget, forget a name, whatever that is, everybody knows it. So there's an additional pressure that goes along with that. Well, what do you do when you're depressed? Uh, you know, it's funny you say that. So years ago, back in 2000, when I was working with Sue at WNEW in New York, um, I went through a really tough period. And my dad had been diagnosed as bipolar one. And so at this point, I was probably 35 years old. And it really started to get to me. And I started pretty intensive therapy. And I was diagnosed bipolar one also. And so I do have that that sort of ride in me. There's, it's not like I'm crazy, you know, I'm, I've, I've, I'm a guy that is very, very focused on taking exactly the medicine that I've been told to take by my shrink. And I, I talk very openly with him once a week. Um, and so I, I don't have wild ups and I don't have wild downs, but I realize now that I used to, I used to have very, in particular, the ups were, were really, really intense for me. So, uh, yeah, I, I, it takes therapy very, very seriously and take my meds exactly the way they're prescribed. And, you know, I keep my moods within a certain healthy range. I want to bring in our friend from the North and the South, Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer, I'm sure, you know, has, has, is very familiar with this. What do you do if you're, if you're a family member, a caregiver, a loved one, how do you, how do you support somebody who, who has this issue? It's a really, you know, it's an interesting question. It's and it's a hard one. And whenever we love someone, we get very entangled, you know, and we affect each other. And you know, families are like systems. And I always say, like being in a family is like four people sleeping on a waterbed. Remember those? Uh, one person rolls over, and everybody everybody rolls over. <laughs> like it affects everyone, right? So it's sort of a system. And I think the biggest piece of advice, and that person to, to be managing those highs and lows and never knowing when they're coming is not an easy thing to live with. Um, and I think the people loving someone like that need to also control their highs and lows. Because when you live with someone who has, you know, big moods and big feelings, whether it's bipolar or not, you know, and just people who, you know, have trouble with regulating and certainly parents of, of teenagers, <laughs> right there, you have it. 
Um, if you sort of live in the state of, okay, good, good, they're up. Okay, we're going to be all right. This is going to be an okay day. Um, and then the, when they're down, oh, they're down. Now what are we going to do? Oh, what are we going to do? That you go with them, right? And that also adds a tremendous amount of stress to the person that's trying to regulate on their own. So finding this place where you're like, okay, so they're up today. Up is nice. We can do nice. Um, we're okay. And tomorrow, maybe not, or in a week, it might be down and we're going to be okay either way. It's being able to sort of ride those waves and not so often when we're family members and certainly when we're parents is that we just are like, oh, I want this person to just behave this way or feel this way so that I can feel better. And whenever your moods are dependent on someone else, you've just complicated the system, right? So part of it is calming down. I mean, part of it is calming your own emotions down and, and you know, talking to yourself, taking care of yourself. This is the thing we talk about on the show is being a good being a good support for somebody else is often starting with yourself like like we think we can do things for other people but we don't have to do them for for ourselves and you really can't i mean you you can you can fake it but it's not really the kind of support that you that you want to give well and the thing is the thing is for me is you know i've been with my partner now for 15 years and he know a lot of times I will say to him, do you think I'm running high or do you think I'm running low? A lot of it is sort of checking my own thinking uh, because some, I, I don't think I could, I, I mean, I, I'll be frank, I don't think I could get by without him to check my thinking with. Um, and, you know, he's been an unbelievable support and I, you know, and I think I've been an unbelievable support to him as well, but I'm, I can be a handful. Yeah. Well, it's good. You have, you have a lot of, a lot of self-awareness, which has come with uh, working on things over the years, I'm sure. But now you're on radio, you come out, you do Mason in Ireland. You've been with John for God knows how 27 many years. years. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That, you, that, that is amazing. Um, and you guys are do so well with each other. It seems so natural. And I know it is natural, but but isn't that like kind of like a marriage? Isn't that kind of like one of your most significant relationships? And how has that changed over the years? And how do you how do you help each other? You know, it's a it's a weird dynamic because John and I kind of have a rule that we don't talk about things before we go on the air because we want them to be fresh and real and honest and authentic. So we don't plan any of our interactions uh, for the show. So a lot of times we'll be having a conversation before the show and he or I will say, hold it for the show, hold it for the show. And because of that dynamic, John, and we, we joke about this. John has been to my house for a couple of Christmas parties. I've been to John's house for, I think, a dinner party once and, an, and a, a barbecue once. But for the most part, we live such different lives. And that's one of the reasons why the show works. I mean, John is... Corona Del Mar to UCLA to Manhattan Beach, and I'm Altoona to Toledo to Venice Beach. Uh, and, you know, he's, he's, I, I think somebody said, I think it was uh, Tommy Chong said, it's uh, the stoner in the square. It is, it is a little bit like that. We're so different that the relationship works. Now, you've interviewed everybody. Over the years, there really there aren't too many people that you you haven't interviewed. I don't think, 
is there is there anybody who have been the people who have made like a lasting impression on you or that you've taken something from that you've used in maybe in your own life? Uh, James Cromwell is uh, an actor, great character actor. And there's we, we had a great conversation one night. And, you know, I was doing talk radio at night. This was when I was doing the Snyder Show. And I did about 45 minutes with, with James. He was great in LA Confidential, you know, a lot of films. And he told me a couple of things that stick with me to this day. Because we were talking about life. And he said, ride the horse in the direction it's going. Uh, which is a really powerful statement to me. Because we have a tendency to fight against what clearly, clearly where we're headed. And the sooner you accept that, whether that's a life choice or a career or a relationship, the sooner you accept it, the better off you are because that's where the horse is going. The other thing he said was, uh, we are and we always will be. This is just our time to eat chocolate cake. And I'm telling you, there are very few people that I've interviewed, and I've interviewed you know hundreds, thousands of people. There are very few people who I remember lines exactly like that. Like I couldn't tell you what President George W. Bush said to me. I couldn't tell you what Cher said to me or Dolly Parton or Ice Cube or any of the people I've talked to. But I remember James Cromwell. I remember those two quotes really clearly. So whether he knows it or not, he had an enormous impact uh, on my life because those are two statements, two sayings that I really do live by. That's a wonderful experience to have and one that you always want to have. Unfortunately, well, I've, I've had many great experiences, but unfortunately, I also remember my great grandfather, uh, an old Jewish man who came from Russia. And for years, he would say something in Yiddish. When I was a kid, I spoke Yiddish exclusively because I was imitating him. And so I spoke Yiddish up until I was five, which is insane. So, so, and I'm, you pardon my language, but no, no, he literally would say this thing. And then years later, I found out what it was. He said, Ozma Kokdoff and Kop and Sagathan Moyle. And what that means is, <laughs> this is the kind of self-esteem from the Krasnick family. When you shit on my head, that's one thing. But when it starts going in my mouth, then I have to speak up. <laughs> And that's when I have to say something. So this is the Krasnick family. You're talking about, uh, it's it's kind of a, but if you can get through that, um, this is, Yiddish sayings are very strange, and I'm sorry to be so crass, but but this is, we're talking about a who's who of emotional despair. <laughs> it is a who's who, and uh, or who's not who. But Jennifer, I, I want to I just say, you know, this is, um, if you can, if you think back, like in your own life, do you have experiences like that? I'm not talking about my great grandfather. I did that for comedic effect, but it was true. But 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 do you have people that stayed with you or things that stayed with you that you actually use as a therapist now? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and I, I just want to speak to the two quotes because I think they're amazing, right? The ride where the horse is in the direction the horse is going. And that's such profound. And maybe the reason that really struck you, Steve, is that it's so true, right? We spend so much time fighting against the current, right? And and when I work with families, I'll often teach them to steer into the skid, right? Like go with it a little bit. There's lessons in there and sort of letting go and trusting, you know, we're so busy fighting every feeling and 
trying to feel something else. And if I don't like how I feel, drink something, buy something, smoke something. Um, and the truth is that often the pain or what you're experiencing is where you, where you have to go. And that's where the lessons are. And that's where, where the work is. And I love the chocolate cake one. Cause I think we miss the point of life. Often we keep thinking that you have to suffer and you have to struggle and, and if you're not in pain, somehow you haven't earned what what's coming to you. But we're going to miss the point of life if you think that's what it is. Like, you really do have to stop and just enjoy the moments. Otherwise, you're, you're going to miss them. They're there. No matter how hard things seem, you can always find something beautiful in that moment. This is thinking, too, riding the horse and going in the same direction. Often, your thoughts, the things that are going on in your head, you're thinking is going in one direction. Maybe it's a negative direction. Maybe it's a positive direction. Maybe there's a resistance going on. Just being aware of those things yeah. can change your life. It does change your life. And, and it resonates for me especially uh, because my, again, because of just my particular makeup, my thoughts are often racing in a lot of different directions. Um, I always think that I'm, a, I'm like a computer screen where I've got too many applications open, you know, I've got Word and I've got Excel and I've got a podcast, I got uh, my text open. I mean, so many windows. I've got so many windows open in my head. And to coordinate those by, by that quote, to just move in one direction and simplify my thoughts has, has really been a powerful and, and transformational way uh, to look at what's going on inside my head. Well, you know what's so important about that is the the bad shows are necessary, and they're probably they're, I'm sure they're not even bad, but it it's what makes the great shows great, and that's really the whole point of of all of the things that we go through, right? The bumps, the contours, the contrast, the the things that happen to us that we don't like or that are hard, actually make the great things greater. And if we could all learn to value that, it would really change a lot in terms of mental health, for sure. And it sounds so corny, but it's the truth. If we learn to value the stuff that doesn't feel great and know that it's just as, it's, it's as important as the great stuff, that's a huge lesson. Do you use, do you use that when you're, when you're interviewing a guest or when you're talking with John, like, how do you bring yourself back to the present if you catch yourself drifting? You know, there are, t it's, it's so strange. I, there are times when I feel like I'm just in it. I feel like I'm completely in the flow and I'm, I'm lost in the show. The show is sort of happening and I'm in it. It's working through and as and with me. There are other times where I'm saying words and I'm thinking about something completely different um, where I'm What's in my head is not what I'm saying. I'm I think to myself, I'm just saying words right now, and so that's sort of the push pull. Sometimes, sometimes it's all gone, uh, and and I'm in the flow of it. And other times, it's just it it's challenging. You know, uh, last week I had a day where I was like, I don't, I'm not in this today. I'm not rolling with this today. Um, and I will often say to the to the people I work with. That was a terrible show today. That's the worst show of the week. Um, I'm un unbelievably harsh with myself. Uh, and they all make fun of me and say I'm whining or whatever they say. Um, but for me, there's a judgment that I cast on every single show. And I have to live with that for 24 hours and sometimes 48 hours, whatever the last taste of the show was. 
So there's, there are a couple of, there's, there's a bad show every week. Um, and then there are great shows, but it's, it's sort of a, an, a practice of self-forgiveness. Um, as long as you get in there, you do as, as well as you possibly can. You do everything you can to deliver. You have to accept that even if it, even if it doesn't turn out to be a great show. You know, I mean, I grew up as a kid. I, what I felt inside was completely different from what I said outside. It almost was the opposite. So I learned how to make people laugh when I was a kid because I was concerned about their welfare because they were overwhelmed and overburdened and, and, and they never learned the skills of, they never learned self-care in that generation. So, so I really trained myself to do the opposite. Uh, and, it, and it's very challenging for somebody who grows up that way to realize that they, they have to, you know, you have to make choices. You have to be conscious of what you're doing in, in moment to moment stuff. And, you know, I get, I often get into trouble with that, uh, conflict, not an easy thing for me. Um, in fact, my, I think I said this before on the show, but my friend, Andy Kidler, who's a great comedian, he said, if I were a Batman villain, I would be the back peddler. Um, because I'm constantly backpedaling. But I, I say this, I wanted to get into this a little bit. Uh, there's a couple things that I really wanted to get into. Um, this I've always found tough as a host, and it's something I've always strived for, and that's being your whole self on the air. Like, you you have emotions just like anybody else. You're there to, to host a show, but but you can't really... It's if you hold things back from the audience, you're holding back a part of yourself, and it make it can make it very difficult. Now, Steve, you had something come up. I mean, you you're hosting a sports talk show, a daily sports talk show, and you had something, a major event in your life where you actually, you know, came out with your identity in a, in a very declarative way, and it was a it must have felt very challenging to you to do that. Uh, yeah, it was, it was scary. It's, uh, I, I did come out as gay. Um, and, and when I say that everybody in the world knew, uh, my boss and the people I worked with and the people, uh, my neighbors and my family and everybody knew there was just that last barrier to do it publicly. And there was a point at which I, I was going to do it. <laughs> I was going to do it on Bill Simmons podcast. Um, and Bill really wanted me to do it. And I said, you know, I just don't want to be that. I, I understand why that would be compelling. I don't want to be that. And I came out in the simplest way possible. Um, and it was matter of fact. And it was, um, it was uh, honest. And I didn't want it to be a thing. And I think that's been the most powerful part about it is that I, I'm not the gay sports talk show host. I'm just a sports talk show host who happens to be gay. And for me, that's, that's and I, you know, I've never gotten, you know, Twitter is a horrible place. And I spend a lot of time there because that's a great way to promote the show and challenge ideas and all that stuff. Um, but I've never gotten a hateful tweet attacking the fact that I'm gay which is an incredible testament to how much safer the world is than we think it is. Um, it was a completely gratifying experience every single step of the way. And you're right, Ed, for the, you know, there was always an incomplete piece. I could never talk about 
any relationship that I was having. John would talk about his wife, his, his uh, son. For me, I, I had no personal life. And so to put that on the air was really empowering. And now it's just matter of fact. And, you know, we talk about my, uh, my partner, Juan. We call him Juan. Uh, and, uh, and everybody knows Juan. Uh, and if I am noticed or recognized in public and I'm with, uh, Jack, people will say, Hey, that's Juan. Uh, so it's just, it's just a common part of what we do now. And it's been unbelievably liberating. Well, I was going to say too, I think the way that you had the conversation, you know, I talk a lot on this show about when you, when you enter into anything that you're going to talk about or do or feel when, when you're in a place of, of love. And just settledness and just this kind of anchored spot, people are going to react to that. And if you're afraid and oh, I don't know, and this is going to be a thing and I got to make it a big, you're going to, that energy is going to go with it. Right. And there, it just sounded like it was so centered and just came from this place of love, which, and it doesn't really matter what it is. If we can, if we can center ourselves that way, so many things, including how people react to us, um, will change, right? We're, we're so much more in control of, it's known as intersubjectivity, right? We're, we're so much more in control of how other people respond to us than we think. We have so much more power than we think just based on where we're, you know, what, what place we're operating from, if that makes sense. The conversation that's going on inside is, uh, you know, often it's telling you that you, what you can't do or what you don't want or what's not right. And there's a lot that is right. And there's a lot that you a lot that you can do in in any moment. I know that you know one thing that's fascinating to me about you is that you've owned movie theaters. Yes, I have. I've owned up to thirty seven screens. You know that's where I always escaped to as a kid. I skipped school and I would go see a double feature. I'd see Catch Twenty Two and Harold and Maude at the Harvard Square Cinema. You know, like whatever was playing there was two different movies every day. Big part of my life. So I guess one question I wanted to ask you is. In terms of in terms of portraying mental health or portraying someone who's bipolar, are there good are there movies that have captured it in in the correct way? Like is 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 Silver Linings Playbook an example of something like that? You you know they they tried, but I thought they sugar coated that. I, it I, it was it was there, and it was definitely. Uh, a part of the movie, but I didn't think it was a, an incredibly accurate uh, portrayal. You know, the the one, and I changed subjects, the one um, place where I think it was really well portrayed was in a Broadway show, believe it or not, called Next to Normal, which I, I think is the closest I've seen to a really, and it's a musical, the closest I've seen to a really good, accurate representation of, of what that, uh, mental state is. There's a, uh, there was something about the music, you know, it got at the, sometimes the despair and sometimes the mania, which I think people forget about the mania part of it. Um, you know, I, the mania is dangerous. Um, and honestly to be depressed is one thing, but you can really ruin your life with mania. Um, and next to normal followed a woman who we saw, I saw both ends of the spectrum. Um, and I saw it in song and somehow that sort of nonverbal, that, that musical way of portraying it made it feel, it had the feeling of what it's really like. Hmm. 
Interesting. It's especially interesting that it was a musical. That's fascinating. It's something I'd love, I'd love to see. When you want to comfort yourself, when you want comfort food that's a movie, what are you watching? Well, I mean, I'm a sucker for The Godfather. I watched all three, but my uh, partner had never seen The Godfather. I, I don't, I don't know why I, I even got with them. I, I had, <laughs> I don't even know how I did it. Uh, but we watched all three in a row, uh, just uh, probably six months ago. And it's and and three, by the way, is very underrated. We think of it as a total joke, but it's actually kind of uh, it's kind of delicious um, because Pacino's so you know. He's so doing the Pacino thing in that. You pulled me back in. Um, and the other one, for some reason, is uh, is Casino, which I just love that that De Niro-Pesci dynamic. I love Don Rickles in that movie as the casino manager. Uh, and I, I love the fact that it ends up with uh, De Niro in those big, thick Coke bottle glasses and sort of that smoking jacket uh, in his house picking winners. Um, I, I love that movie also. What about the colors uh, in that movie when he's wearing like salmon colored leisure suits and it matches the wall? Oh, yeah. Where he's hosting hosting the pretend TV show or the TV show that's on cable access. Yeah, it's there's something kind of there's something a little bit over the top about it. And uh, it completely works for me. I worked in Vegas and I worked at, at Bally's. I was working at Bally's and I went to see Don Rickles perform. And um and during the daytime, they had a show at the Dunes, the old Dunes, and they had a show that was, um, it was called Las Vegas Tonight, and they had Jerry Lewis on as a guest. And it's like two in the afternoon. And he came on, and it was the closest thing I've ever seen to that Robert De Niro hosting a show in the hotel experience. It was fantastic. It was horrifying, but it was fantastic. It was Tony Orlando. And he outed Tony Orlando that Tony had a, a cocaine problem at that time in front of the audience. And the audience was like, their mouths were gay. It's like, I tell this guy to get off the powder and he won't do it. And it was like, it was absolutely insane in the middle of an audience. I went there to get his autograph and like halfway into the show, I left because I couldn't believe what an incredibly strange, horrible human being he is or was maybe. Um, but, uh, but anyway, yeah, that world is very interesting. And The Godfather, to me, Godfather 2 is the best movie that's ever been made. There's never been a better movie made because he's got the story you talk about going forward on the horse or going what direction on the horse this guy is keeping a story going forward by going back into the past and i don't know anybody who could do that that that's a master if you now your theaters did you did you actually help to program the theaters i did i did in fact uh the commercial theaters kind of took care of themselves you know it's the avengers and it's ant-man and it's you know it's just whatever blockbuster happens to be coming out but I had a 10 screen art house in uh, Palm Desert called Cinema's Palm Door. And I programmed that literally by hand. I curated those films. Um, and we played, obviously, the mainstream art films we played, but we would also play really tough movies. You know, we'd play the tough Almodovar movie. Uh, or, you know, we'd bring back a movie, you know, a revival. We'd bring back Cinema Paradiso. Um, and it was, it was a joy and a pleasure. And we did Q and A's out there very similar to what I'm doing on the podcast with Sue, 
where we'd bring out the filmmaker or we'd bring out uh, one of the stars. I remember uh, when The Help uh, was nominated for an Oscar, uh, when Viola Davis was nominated for an Oscar, the day after the nomination, she comes busting into the back of the theater and we do a Q&A after a screening of The Help for 400 plus people. And she was just just dynamic, just almost like there's nothing she could do in life except be a star. She was so made for it. Uh, but to have experiences like that and to bring that sort of to that community, which is a very, uh, you know, a very thoughtful, you know, grownups, uh, you know, 60 plus year olds uh, who are looking for culture and looking for art. And to be able to do that at a at a 10 screen art house out there was was really, really fun. Well, I remember, I remember that theater. I actually remember it. My grand, my father-in-law lives down there in Palm Desert, and I remember seeing, you know, some of the some of the movies there. But this this combination of uh, having a movie and then interviewing people from the cast or doing that kind of stuff, there is nothing better. And that's one of the great things about being in the LA area is that you used to be able to see those things uh, a lot, or you'd see them at the Writers Guild. And that experience always, even as a kid, uh, I loved it. But I remember seeing Fried Green Tomatoes when it came out. And I remember the fact that the audience was like in their 60s and older, and there was no place for these people to go at the time. And this was a movie that spoke to them. Now, the good news about it is that older people, they're, they're such great, you know, they've lived and they really can appreciate a good story. The other side of it was also that the guy who was sitting in front with his wife, either he couldn't see or he couldn't hear well. And she was explaining the movie to him blow by blow, like moment to moment. And then all of a sudden in the middle of the movie, he said, why is she keeping the baby? And it was like, it was the it was both the greatest experience and the funniest experience because she was leading him through it. Um, yeah, movies have always kept me company, and uh, I always used to say when the light when the lights went down, the feelings came up, and the movies I never had to take care of anybody. Yeah, I mean, I think I probably when when theaters were open, uh, probably in twenty nineteen before all this started, I I. I think I keep a list. I had, I saw at least 80 movies in theaters. I miss the going to the theater experience. I try to recreate it at home. Like I watched, uh, what did I watch this weekend? I watched uh, Promising Young Woman. I got a screener for it. Turn the lights down, made popcorn, all that stuff. But it's just not the same experience as being in a theater. You just don't have that same level of, of attention that you would have um, when you're sitting in the front row of a movie theater. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know. And it, it's interesting. Well, Ed, you know, so my dad is a theater historian. Yeah. He just knows everything about movie theaters and movie palaces. And so I kind of grew up just knowing the whole magic behind the theater itself, which years ago was an event. There was a live orchestra and theaters have gone through all kinds of different, you know, changes, but I, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know how they're going to recover from this, but they will. I'm sure that they will. Well, I was just going to say the living room's great, but it's not the same as being in a community with other people, other humans laughing and clapping and responding to a film all together is, is pretty magical. When I, when I work with families, I mean, it's tricky right now because everyone's feeling quite isolated, but I'll, I'll make sure I, I always recommend having a movie night with the family without devices because families will sit, watch a movie and everyone's on their device too while they're watching the movie. Like they don't even put the phone down long enough to 
get absorbed into the film and actually feel it together. So I think it's, you know, the small screens, they're a part of our lives. They're not going anywhere, but there's just something about big collective experiences like that, that we're, I think we're all missing terribly right now. And walking out, there's that murmuring, that murmuring. I'm, I'm curious what other people are saying about it. You know, I really liked, oh, she was, she was great. And you know, like that whole thing, totally dug that coming out of a movie. Well, it used to be that people would see movies and then they go out and talk about them for an hour or two. And they would, that was part of like every day. Like, and then there became like Albert Brooks talked about this a while back. And he said, I saw 2001 and I have no idea what it means. And I've seen it 25 times. And he said, and you know what? I like that. I don't know what it means. I like it because it, it's open to interpretation and you don't have to spoon feed the audience. I mean, it's good for the audience to think a little bit. It's good for them to talk about it. Now, Jennifer, do you ever, pres- would you ever prescribe a movie for somebody? Absolutely. One of the, one of the ones I often recommend is about time, which is a great film. Yeah. Just about going back and understanding the the great moments in life. Absolutely. When I have couples going through things or, there's kids going through things. Honestly, it's it's such magic. And as you were talking about movies and movie theaters, I I miss that a lot. Actually, that's a I miss being in the theaters. I really do. You know, everybody did watch TV together. They they were in the living room together. So my family really what brought us together was watching the Ed Sullivan Show, and I was a little kid. But everybody had their favorite act. And my family, what would happen is if you looked in their faces you would see them come to life because they were projecting their love onto the people who were their favorite performers. And you would see their faces fill, you know, they, they came to life. And what, but what they didn't realize is if you turn the TV screen around, what none of us realized is that if you can feel that for a performer, it's in you. Like the performer didn't put it there necessarily. Those feelings, that energy, that passion is in there and, and it needs to be used somewhere, right? But if you, you know, whether it was Alan King, who I worked with, I luckily worked with, or whether it was, you know, George Carlin or Richard Pryor, or the comedians, or whether it was the Beatles or the Doors or whoever it was, every member of the family had something and the family was together. I think Barry Levinson in his movie Avalon uh, portrayed it so beautifully, like what happened to people is they went off into the suburbs and they went off, you know, into their own worlds which is into their devices. Yeah. And so people are watching alone. There is no experience that will ever take the place of watching something together. Watching a game, watching a game together. Yeah. My dad would often call me uh, before he passed away. He would say, and you know, so, so when I was growing up, the language uh, that we used among the men in the family was just sports. I mean, if you didn't know sports, you couldn't really have a conversation with anybody else in the family. So we would always have the game on. And back in the day, there was really just one, there was one game at a time, the big game of the week, whatever that happened to be. Uh, But years later, my dad, before he passed away, would call me and say, are you watching the game? And I would think, God, there's so many games on. I wonder which one he's watching. It could be, it could be any of these games. Um, but no sports is the other thing that, and again, we don't have that experience right now. You know, normally I would be going to Laker games. I would be at Dodger spring training. I would be doing 
all those things that go along with sports and any of those great collective experiences are what we're missing right now. That's where that that deep loneliness uh, is coming from right now. The thing that, that really hasn't taken over on Zoom is comedy. Doing live comedy on Zoom, of course, because you don't have the, the, the reaction is very, um, you know, it's very challenging. Although um, I did something the other night and it reminded me of being a kid performing for my family in the living room. You know, that old Jewish family where people are looking at you and they're, they're you know, they're teasing you into performing because um, I used to do a lot of impressions. Uh, I did everybody but myself for many years. <laughs> and then I went, oh, I did everybody. I, I went into, you know, I did, I, and I also did families. I did the Kennedy family. I did all the Kennedys, including Rose Kennedy, the mother. So was I looking for a family? Maybe, but but no, I would do all those things. And you know, growing up as a as a mimic, you listened to radio, you heard broadcasts, you had this experience with your dad, you had these things. Um, did you did you try? Did you did you mimic the game, or did you broadcast, or did you were you doing that when you were a kid? When I was a little kid, um, my dad would come home from work, and I would read the sports page out loud. Um, I'd re basically read him the sports page. And technically that was my first experience with, I guess it wouldn't be broadcasting, uh, but that was my first experience with, uh, with doing something that I thought I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And the only thing I ever really wanted to do was, was radio. Um, I, there's an art to it and, you know, I've done television. I was the, the weekend sports guy at channel 11 and, you know, I did a, even when I would uh, fill in sometimes on the Snyder show or I, I never felt like television was the same uh, for me as radio. There's, there's an art to radio, to connecting with people and authenticity that goes beyond just reading a teleprompter. I don't know if podcasting will ever replace, uh, you know, live radio. I got to be honest with you, the conversation that we're having right now feels like it would be a great late night radio show. Well, you know, this is what people used to do. I, I grew up in Boston and Boston local radio was incredibly good. Uh, I know New York was too, and I'm sure every area had their own regional, but we had the greatest shows that were in, incredible. And they were calling, they were late at night. There was one called Drug Hotline which was like they would, it was these two guys who had, were in recovery and they would host it all night long. Uh, and, and I swear to God, I went to bed listening to those guys. Um, there was something very, very personal about it. And just the music of conversation, I would call it the music of conversation. When I was a little kid, my, the family downstairs was playing board games with each other. And I love to go to bed to the sound of people playing games with each other or connecting with each other or to a sound. There was always, you know, some kind of sound or conversation. Right now I can hear a police siren in the distance uh, or maybe it's just in my head and I feel like maybe they're coming for me soon. Um, well, Steve, I can't, you know, we're going to do this. We got to do this again. There's, there's a lot more to talk about, but I can't thank you enough for taking the time. It's a, it's a pleasure. As I say, a fan fan for so many years, and it's nice to finally meet you. Absolutely. Really appreciate it. No, it's a great show. Great show. I appreciate it. I will listen to it. And, and by the way, share it with me so I can share it on all my social platforms. 
So listen to Steve Mason and our good friend Sue Kalinsky on the Culture Pop podcast. Amazing guests, like world-class guests, Michael Imperioli, Glenn Turman, a million other celebrities that you know that I haven't heard on any other shows. They're on Culture Pop podcast with Steve Mason and Sue Kalinsky. I want to say goodbye to everybody. Well, listen, this has been amazing. Um, I've learned a lot of things and such an interesting person, Steve Mason. What a pleasure to have Steve on the show. Uh, If you want to subscribe, if you want to find us, you can find us wherever you get your podcasts. You can subscribe. You can also find us in all the show notes at makelightmedia, M-A-K-E-L-I-G-H-T media.com, makelightmedia.com, where you find us on the social pages under the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. And I want to thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with a new show. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick for Jennifer Kalari. We will see you next time. 